Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast. It's called WTF. Welcome to it. I don't want to get too lost in the darkness or the light, but here I, I would like to say that Marsha Warfield uh, is on the show today. We reached out to her to have her on a, a while back, actually, and it was a tough to schedule because she lives in Las Vegas. But now that we're doing things remote, it was a good time to have her on since she's part of the comedy store history and a, a definite um, important player in, in, in modern stand-up history. Might know, remember her from Night Court. She's going to be here. She is here. I talked to her. You'll hear it today. How's everybody holding up in this... Uh, 50-state death factory. What's going on out there? Are you staying safe? Are you okay? Are you keeping it together? Kind of. A lot of people are shredding. A lot of people are sad. A lot of people are losing people. A lot of people are just trying to fucking keep it together, man. I get it. I definitely get it. It's a, it's a, it's a weird time because I think I said this towards the beginning of this thing. I said, however long this is going to go on for, people are going to come out of it knowing exactly who they are, what they are made of. Who are you? Because here's what's happening. I I think that a lot of people, I would imagine that the veneer of self is starting to wear down, to wear off the, the sort of coding that you call who you are. The puppet you inhabit uh, is, is, is probably breaking down a bit and there you are right look at me look at me when i when the puppet's broken for those of us who based a good portion of our relevance on how we're seen or what we do in the world if you're not doing that in the world even if you're just not going out in the world i talked to a buddy of mine hadn't been to a to a fucking grocery store in five months really locked down and went out and because he had to go to the doctor and had a couple exchanges just regular exchanges with human beings and was moved to tears at the strange realization that it's we need that we need it so however you're deprived i I mean a lot of you have people and a lot of you like me are sort of uh having people over having dinners with uh, people distanced dinners and 
going out in the world a bit and, you know, safely, sitting outside a lot, waving at friends, calling people. I, I mean, I really try to get as much of that as possible. But I think on the other side of that, even if you have family or whoever you're hanging out with on a day-to-day basis, if your sense of self is based on how you are seen or what you do or your job out in it, and you can't go out in it anymore, I would imagine that there's some moment of who the fuck am I happening? Who I who am I without all that? Possibly broke, sadly. Hopefully not. But who am I without that stuff? And that's some... Uh, there's a lot of soul searching going on that no, none of us signed up for. I'm fortunate in that I can do my job here. But I didn't sign up to be the guy whose girlfriend died and he's crying at night talking to his cat again. And the cat's dying too. I didn't sign up for that. I didn't sign up for the, the man who has to sit quietly on his porch with a heavy heart wondering what it means. How do we integrate death into our lives? I think that's a question everyone's asking, and it's something that we have to deal with personally. Loss, but also just the fact of of so much death around. Hey, but I don't want to be a bummer. You know, my my uh, my girlfriend got nominated for an Emmy for best directing. For Little Fires Everywhere, I believe for the finale episode, Lynn Shelton is nominated for a directing Emmy for a, for a drama series or miniseries or whatever it is. Limited series. Very exciting. She would be so fucking thrilled and she is so deserving of that nomination and of that award. She was great at her job. She was great when she did it with complete creative freedom and great when she did it to honor the vision of somebody else. I'm very proud of her and I'm so sad that she can't be here for this, this honor. Whatever you think of awards, I've talked about them before. Like when your peers honor you, it means something. And she would just be thrilled. And I know her family's thrilled. I know all of her friends are excited for her. And I, I think everybody just wish, just wishes that uh, she would call them and tell them how excited she is. But it's a, it is a, it's a beautiful thing that she got nominated. And, uh, you know, whether she wins or not, it's, it doesn't. I don't think it matters to her. Maybe it does. I don't know how the afterlife works. But uh, but that was some good news, and it was exciting news, and bittersweet for sure. For sure. But um, very excited uh, for Lynn. I will think of her as if she's here and what she would be thinking. She would just be bouncing off the fucking walls. I'll tell you that. It's weird, man. Something is hovering around my my being with this loss everywhere. And it's not bad. It's not bad. Maybe it's because I'm in my 50s and maybe I'm heading into my late 50s. I'm going to be 57 in a few months. And it's going to happen. It's going to happen to all of us at some point. But But the things that die, they just hover there. They're still here. Everything's still here. Everything's still with you. 
It's just there's there's less there's less clutter, there's less responsibility in a way. But that makes the love even more pure. Strange thing, life. And I know that uh, you know honoring the dead and honoring the legacy of the creative people that have been in our lives, like uh, Lynn and like her her parents, uh, you know, put out a statement uh, about her Emmy nomination that was quite beautiful, uh, a, a testament to her collaborative abilities, but also her complete control over her craft. But it basically says um, that Lynn is honored. By the Television Academy is not only a tribute to her accomplishments as a director, but her style of directing. Always in control, but kind-hearted, making the final decisions, but always soliciting input from her co-workers. Co-workers, yes, that is how she regarded everyone on set, from grips and gaffers and set and costume designers to the director of photography and the actors. This is an honor for the ultimate collaborationist who knew that she would produce her best if she teased the best out of her teammates. Very sweet. She certainly teased the best out of me. I'll tell you that. Take a breath, man. Take a breath. Cry it out, people. So I got an email that speaks to something I've been saying to other people. You know, people are like, when are we going to go back to work? When are we going to go back to work? And the only thing I can think of, and I've been saying this for weeks, months, is that there's no work until there's a test that we can all take every day. Something easy, something practical, something that we can have 10 of in our medicine cabinet. Something you, you know, simple as a, as, a, as a diabetes test, as a blood test, as a, maybe even a, a little machine that does it. I don't know, but I don't see how anything happens without that. And I got this letter from this guy, a teacher. We said, dear Mark, I cannot, his name's Daniel. Dear Mark, I can honestly say that not a week has gone by in the last 12 years that I haven't thought about writing to you about something. Never more so than during your recent tragic time of loss and grief. I am so sorry. Thank you. I finished 12 years of graduate school in 2008. The economy collapsed and I was unemployed for 10 years. I'm just a few years older than you. Throughout that decade, sharing your journey kept me searching for my podcast from a garage. I found it. I'm a public high school science teacher. You also helped me quit smoking. This is why I'm writing now. There are new developments. There is a growing realization the only way out of this crisis will require cheap, daily, rapid, at-home tests for COVID-19. The good news is that these tests exist now. We call upon Congress to mandate and fund the approval, manufacture, and distribution of these tests to every household in America. When I say we, I mean me and a guy I know named John. Okay, that's what it is in parentheses. Please add your voice to ours. It's louder. Your activism has inspired me to send the attached letter and accompanying information to all of my elected representatives, my union, my favorite media outlets. This is an underreported story. I hope you will talk about it. Mark, you have all my love, admiration, gratitude, and my deepest sympathy, Daniel. So, look, this is true. And you should know that it, it, it obviously has to happen. It's happening in other countries, but here we have such a tremendous leadership vacuum and a government that is so fucking broken that I don't know if it's going to happen. Will there be wealthy people who are able to obtain at-home rapid tests? Yes. Will there be industries that use them to make sure they can generate revenue? Yes. Will you be able to get one because your government thinks it's a smart thing to do? Of course not. Of course not. Right now, they can't even agree to emergency spending methods or mask mandates. 
It's fucking ridiculous. It's a grifter's picnic. And this will not change, folks, until you get rid of the people who are the problem. If you want rapid at-home testing, you better vote in November. It's not happening until there are new people in charge. So, right now, uh, I'd like to share my conversation with one of the um, great women of comedy, Marsha Warfield. Uh, We talked, uh, she was in Vegas. She's in Vegas. Uh, It was a nice chat. It was nice to see her, nice to meet her. Uh, Now, uh, it's another person I can put into the pantheon of people I have talked to from the comedy store's history, from comedy history. This is me and Marsha Warfield. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school, or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature, and now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Fox Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Fox Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, Marcia. Hi. I just texted Mike Binder <laughs> to uh, to ask uh, him if you talked to him for the documentary. Yes, I did. He. It was funny because I interviewed him years ago in the old garage in person. And when I talked to him, he didn't even want to talk about the comedy store. And I told him, you got to talk about the comedy store. And now he can't get enough of it. Now it's like he is the guy that's putting together the most thorough history of that place. Yeah, it's ever. about 400 hours or so by now, isn't it? It's got to be. Yeah. It's got to be. And I went over there. It's so weird because I went because I was a doorman at the comedy store in the 80s. And I went over there and uh, we and Peter Shore let us go through um you know her stuff in that office, okay. upstairs, and I and I have her driver's license. <laughs> <laughs> That's Mitzi Why Shore. I got to deal with my driver's license. <laughs> <laughs> I just know it's a one of a kind souvenir. Uh, everybody who was at the store when I was there does a spot on Mitzi. Of course. Price. So we, but you grew up. Where'd you grow up? Chicago. The whole time in Chicago. Yeah, I, I left Chicago. I started doing stand-up in Chicago in 1974. 74? Yes. What was the scene in Chicago? Like, who was around? What was that? Like, where were you performing? Well, I started at a place called the Pickle Barrel. Huh. Tom Dreesen had just broken up with his partner, Tim Reed. Right. And uh, had started a Monday night open mic. Huh to work out 
And at that time, that was almost pretty much brand new. The improv was around in New York. And I think the comedy store might have been starting or, I mean, but it was a new concept and it was new to Chicago. We weren't known for stand-up. Right. It was mostly a sketch town, Compass Players, Second City. I uh, I talked to Tom, you know, fairly recently, and that was... Uh, that was pretty amazing. He's got kind of an amazing story. And him and his partner, Tim, was it Tim Reed? Tim Reed? Yeah, they were they were kind of a big act for a while. Well, yeah, and they were uh, groundbreaking. I mean, uh, they were the first interracial comedy team. And comedy teams were more much more common than they are now. Right. Uh, but uh, they did pretty well. And, yeah. uh, and then they went their separate ways. And so Tom was, had this open mic. And they featured it in the Sunday Sun Times. And you had never done comedy before? You just were never curious? And uh, I was 22 years old and uh, working at the phone company and uh-huh. saw no future there and had no idea what I wanted to do. So I saw that and I told a friend, I don't want to go out down there and do that. They said anybody can go up. I want to do that. Uh-huh. And she said, okay. So I started writing stuff down, but couple of months went by and I didn't go. And she kept asking me, when are you going? When are you going? And I kept saying, well, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. So she showed up at my house one on Monday at about six o'clock in the evening yeah. and said, put your clothes on. We're going. I'm not ready to go. But put your clothes on. We're going. So I put my clothes on and we went down there. We were way too early. Yeah. We sat there. And uh, finally, about nine, ten o'clock, I guess. Tom showed up and yeah. uh, she went and introduced me. And at that time, we introduced all the comedians as virgins. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. I finally went on about two. How'd it go? Nine scotches. Yeah. So it was a bunch <laughs> of comics, three drunks at a table, uh-huh. and the guys sweeping up because they right. used to have us on the floor. Please right. Yeah, And so I went on and I did the stuff I had. Well, I opened with, uh, my name's Marshall Warfield and I'm a virgin, so please be kind. Yeah. And went from there. The comedians loved me. And the drunks were like, yeah, you're all right. <laughs> and so uh, Tom invited me back and that was the beginning. Did you and Tom come out at the same time out here? No, Tom left uh, maybe a year or so before I did. And I worked around... Chicago. I did uh, a lot of jazz clubs. I did a lot of folk clubs. I did a lot of, you know, whatever was available. And then I got a job as a house comic in a upscale urban jazz club. They had a 16-piece band. And, oh, wow. Uh, uh, they were trying to bring, you know, an upscale venue to the far south side of Chicago. Which, uh-huh. if you know that, that's that's a pretty remarkable thing. And it was 1974. <laughs> but I'm 22 years old. I have one cocktail dress. And at that time, you had to dress up. You know, yeah. we had, still had supper clubs. We still had Mr. Kelly's and, and the Happy Medium and places where, you know, you, you got really dressed up and had dinner and saw Nancy Wilson or Frank Sinatra. Right. And so um, I got to have my one cocktail dress. And I went down there and they they gave me the job. And there were six owners. And it was a hundred bucks a week, two shows a night, five nights a week. Wow. 
And uh, they asked me if I wanted to get paid <laughs> at the end of the week or yeah. every night. I said, I didn't pay me every night. So every night, the owners individually would come to me and ask me if I had gotten paid. And I'd say, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I would end up getting a hundred bucks a night. And I did that for as long as I, I, the club was open. And then I went on and did other things. And after a couple of years, I figured, you know, all the clubs were closing, all of the, the dinner, were, the dinner clubs. Was, yeah. Everybody was moving to, uh, to Los Angeles. The Tonight Show had moved in like From 73. From New York, yeah. And wait, now when you were doing those clubs, were you opening for a lot of musical acts? Yeah. Well, and did, I did a, I did a, a, like I said, opening with the band, with yeah. the band, a sixteen-piece jazz band. Yeah. I, was, uh, I did a lot of those kinds of shows, and uh, and then a lot of times we would just, you know, find a venue and ask them if they had a mic, and uh -huh. if they said yes, then we said, well, can we do a show? And they'd say yes, and then we would entertain the four drunks at the bar. So you decided to move to Los Angeles in what, 76? Six. Six? Yes. March 8th, 1976. Well, March 5th, it was my birthday. I left on my birthday. How does your family feel about it? Like, Do you come from a big family over there? They're not a big family, but I was 22 yeah. and too stupid to be scared. Right. And it was 1976. You have to remember at that time, people were still hitchhiking across the country. Right. And uh, and they had driveaways. You could rent somebody's car and drive it for them to Los Angeles or wherever else they, they wanted you to. Yeah. But there were all kinds of little caravans of kids headed out to Los Angeles, especially to um, headed out to California, a lot to San Francisco as the hate and everything was still, you know. Yeah. I hate and yeah. um, so um, I had told my mother I was going to California hooker by crook. I didn't care if I had to, you know, hitchhike, catch a ride, whatever I was going. Yeah. And so she finally got tired of that and gave me a trip to Los Angeles for my birthday. She probably thought you were going to come back. Right. Two hey. weeks at the Continental Hyatt House. Oh, yeah. And uh, right next door to the comedy store. Yes, that's why I chose it. It's right next door to the comedy store. So you had you had done some research. Oh sure. What did you know about the comedy store before you got out there? That was where all the comedians went to uh, work out, work out, be seen, yeah. you know, make their fame and fortune. It was it was the place at that it had become the place. Freddie Prinze, uh, Jimmy Walker. They were on TV at that time. and uh, Right. And so like that was, and Richard was there 73, 74, 75. So he was around. He got by occasionally, but the regulars were Jimmy Walker, uh, Jay Leno. Uh, Letterman was the, was the uh, MC. So you, okay. So what happens? You go out for the two weeks and you audition? I went out for two weeks. I went to the comedy store that night, the night I got there. Mm -hmm. And I told him I was a comedian. They let me in. And uh, the guy at the door was John Witherspoon. Yes. And I told him I was from Chicago. He said, okay, baby, sit back here and I'll introduce you to everybody. And he did. Everybody that came in, he introduced me. And she's from Chicago and blah, blah, blah. And then Paul Mooney came in about midnight. Uh -huh. And uh, 
Paul. I want you to meet somebody. And he introduced me to Paul. And uh, there's Paul Mooney. And Paul said, Mr. Paul Mooney. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And then he laughed. And I said, I know you. I know you. I know you. You laughed on on that Richard Pryor album. You're the guy who laughed because I could hear that same ah, ha, ha. Really? Craps after hours. Right. And so I you're the guy. You you wrote on that. Then he said yes. And so then we were friends from that point on. And I got to meet all other comedians that were down there. And so I told uh, Spoon I wanted to come by and just hang out, you know, since I was only going to be there for a couple of weeks. And he said, fine, come back. Come anytime, just come on in. And I did. Those uh, That was a Friday and Saturday, Sunday, something like that. So you got to and watch everybody. Yeah. On Monday night, I uh, signed up and went yeah. on. Yeah. And another guy uh, who had just gotten to town and his first night was uh, Argus Hamilton. He and I were comedy virgins together. And you couldn't find two more different people. That's for sure. <laughs> we just He's are polar opposites. Oklahoma, but, Oklahoma preacher's kid. Yeah. 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 And uh, I just saw a post from him talk, saying, you know, my grandpappy fought for that flag. And so <laughs> yeah. we, uh, <laughs> we both shared the same comedy store birthday. That's and, amazing. Yeah, we both became regulars. You still, Mitzi saw you? I don't know. I never really paid a lot of attention to Mitzi. I mean, I paid attention to the, I just signed up. You know, I just signed up and if I got spots, I got spots. If I didn't, I didn't. I don't, you know, I didn't know there was a, you know, a, uh, you know, a genuflecting uh, ritual that one was supposed to do. You didn't? How did you not know? (laughs) I didn't care. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so it wasn't the only place I worked either. I mean, we would go uh, to places like the 20 Grand and and places in Inglewood and uh, Compton and work out there too. What was the vibe at the store in the sense of like, it did it seem like it was pretty balanced? Like, you know, uh, all kinds of people, women, black people, white people. Did you find that or is, am I just making that up? Nah, we didn't find that. We, 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 we had the um, the late night spots. Oh, really? So okay, so it was like that. And um, and if Mooney showed up, yeah, you didn't get those. And if Richard showed up, Mooney didn't get it. <laughs> there was a hierarchy, and and we got the the last spots of the of the night. And no, uh, oh, really? Uh, there were very few women. There was a couple of other black women besides. Uh, Shirley, there was a woman named uh, Brenda Barrett and uh, Roberta Peril. Mm-hmm. And they were both, we were all jockeying for the same one spot, you know. And this was before they started the franchising and the three-act comedy norm. Right, right, the clubs, yeah. When that started, I started working at the last stop in um, Newport Beach. And I got to be a regular there. And that was the first club I got to headline. So when you went there, you when you went out there for two weeks, you auditioned, then you went back to Chicago and you just got your stuff and came back? Never no, went back. Never went back. Got a job as a um, <laughs> switchboard operator for an answering service. Back uh, then, we didn't have uh, 
uh, voicemails and stuff like right. that. Right. So if, when you wanted you were big time, yeah. and you had someone else answer your phone, I was the one who answered celebrity phones. Oh yeah, was that exciting? Did you get any uh, any memorable incidents? Well, it was exciting for me. I mean, you know, when Bill Bixby's phone rang, you you know, you tried to be the one who got it. Yeah. Then uh, there were some people who weren't nice at all. Yeah. And you got to to, you know, experience that firsthand? Sure. So, how did you cuz I know you did the I you did the Richard Pryor show. Did you were you finding that I mean, you were like, did you feel like you were at least part of the the gang? I mean, there was seemed like there was either one gang or two gangs, or like it seems like I'd like to picture that everybody was sort of tight at a certain point. Was that the case or no? Well, the the politics of the room, yeah, and the politics of the comedians. I mean, the comedians, we were all in the in the parking lot smoking weed. We were yeah. all you know hanging out. We yeah, were friends. Right. As far as jockeying for spots, that's a whole different. Sure, of course, so, yeah. Um, we got to know each other, and uh, you got to hear different perspectives. Like I said, Argus is from a whole different world than me. Yeah. And and being able to talk and, and you know, face-to-face, one-on-one, and have really serious conversations was nice. And to also hear that Charlie Hill... You Charlie, know, yeah. He would go on stage and say, I, I, you know, I went to Custer Memorial Junior High. Yeah. It puts things in a perspective you've never heard before. And so there was that going on, but there was also, you know, why is that guy going on before me? I've got yeah. as much material as him. Yeah, yeah. Fuck that guy. <laughs> show biz. yeah charlie hill like is still to this day i mean i feel i don't i have to uh there's a whole little world of uh new native american comedians that i haven't i haven't really talked to and i and i didn't get to talk to him because he had passed away but he was really like the the only one for many years that represented yeah. you know that that ethnic group and he was right. really good he was great nice yeah. guy too he was he was a sweetheart and uh Andy Bumatai from uh, Hawaii. And, uh, and like I said, just different people from different backgrounds that you'd never really run across any other way. And that was the beauty of watching, sitting in the comedy store and watching comedy. For sure. I got to see all those different perspectives. And and when did was everybody gunning for the Tonight Show? When was your first TV spot? Uh you know, there's always been people with different uh, formulas about how to make it. Yeah. And I realized early on, there is no one way to make it. No two performers ever made it the exact same way. Everybody follows their own path. And so the Tonight Show and the the mechanics of it, that people were, you know, oh, you need two giggles, a laugh, a uh, chuckle and a ha-ha yeah. within the first 30 seconds and then have your bit, I'm just like I can't build an act that way yeah. it just doesn't feel natural to me and so I never really pursued the Tonight Show I did the Jim Neighbor show I did the Mac Davis show I did Burt Griffin show wait a minute the Jim Neighbors variety show yeah this is like you know you have these experiences is this it, yeah that was sort of still when you know old show business was in charge Right. I did the Alan King show. 
how long did these shows even last? I mean, I kind of remember them from when I was a kid, but like Mac Davis had a variety show, right? Yeah. And Jim Neighbors was a variety show and the Alan King show. They would just try variety shows with everybody. Like, was the Alan King show on that long? Not really. But yeah. And he was one of the last of the suit and tie cigarette. Yeah. Uh, you know, drinking hand comics. Yeah. I mean, Red Fox were, I can't think of others that were still working. But then the Dean Martin roast was still on too. Did you do and, that? I yeah, I did the Tommy Chong roast though in uh, Vegas uh, uh-huh. with uh, on the Playboy Channel, oh, and wow. I started working the Playboy Channel. You have to remember, uh, Showtime and HBO were startups. Right. Most people didn't have Showtime, HBO, or the Playboy Channel, but those were uh, they were pretty much all in the same thing. So I like the Playboy Channel for the freedom and the, you know, smut of it. <laughs> what about the Richard Pryor show? Cause that, that thing is kind of uh, like that. I've, I've watched that, uh, you know, uh, once or twice. And, and that just felt like, you know, he just went down to the comedy store and got everybody to come down on a bus or something. <laughs> well, Mooney was, uh, was instrumental in that. Mo- uh. Mooney was a writer and, and uh, was very involved with the, with the production. Yeah. And so when Richard wanted a uh, an ensemble, he just asked us if it, at first it went per sketch. They yeah. needed people to do certain sketches, the right. Star Wars sketch and whatever for the opening. And so um, we went down for that. And then the next week, Richard, would they were like, well, you know, you guys work, let's stick with this group and so pretty much it was a, it ended up being a core group but we weren't hired for the run of the series who was it it was you and um was it was sandra bernhardt there yet or sandra no? bernhardt uh, yeah tim reed the mooney twins mooney spoon uh robin robin, robin yeah i think it was the first thing he did yeah, I think that's true. Just about everybody pretty much got a chance to do it who wanted to or who was available. And was it? did you get to know Richard at all or no? Well, see, I had been at the comedy store, you know, and I would sit in the back and just watch comics. And so if somebody didn't show up, I was available to take that spot. Right. And then it became a thing where when the heavy hitters would, would show up, and you know, take somebody's spot because, of course, who's going to deny Richard Pryor or whoever's a uh, uh, spot? So they would take the spot, and then everybody would say they didn't want to follow him. So they would ask him if they could go on in front of him. Right. And most of the time, Richard said, "Sure." Well, he asked me if I wanted to go on in front of him. I said, "No." I said, "Do you know I learned in Chicago the hard way." It doesn't matter who went on in front of you. You do your set, whatever yeah. it is. You do your right. thing. If people, um, you know, if they're through with comic comedy after they saw that guy, they'll leave with him. The people who stayed want to see more comedy. So don't cheat yourself or them. Do your set. So he asked me, and I said no. And that went on for a while. And then one night he goes on, and I go in the back to get a drink. And the next thing I know, they're going, Richard's, introducing you 
What do you mean, Richard? Richard's introducing you. He's calling you up on stage right now. <laughs> yeah. And so I run back, you know, up the steps and I'm standing there and he said, you know, I want you to listen to this lady. She's really funny. I like her a lot. And he introduced me and I went up and did my set in front of him. And I uh, found out later that he was, he appreciated that I never asked to go on first. He thought that was kind of weak. Yeah. The people who did. And so. So he respected you. Yeah. I guess, the, you know, he definitely had a, a sweet side to him. Well, he was very shy and soft-spoken most of the time. Uh, yeah. Like Robin. Uh-huh. It's not until the lights come on, you know, and they take the stage and then something happens and they become who they are. It's amazing, though, that you learn those skills because it's really true that that whole idea of, you know, that you go up and do you no matter what the situation is and and, and that's all you can do. And in the sense that, like, because there's those people that want to go before a big act or, or or else they try to jump on the energy of the person before them or whatever. But none of that's going to matter in the long run if you don't know who you are. No. And so it helped me a lot when the next year or so I entered the San Francisco uh, comedy competition. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Who was in you? 79? Yeah. I did it in 90. Two and ninety three. Who was who was in your year? Dana Carvey. Yeah. Uh, and I don't remember everybody. <laughs> and, and you know some because uh, see they had a national too, and I don't remember if if who did which one. Uh, Robert Wall. Yeah. Uh, Mike Powell. Uh, a lot of people didn't make it to the finals. Just about everybody went up. It was a crazy, was it crazy back then where it was just kind of, you never knew what was going on or how they were judging and they, they well, yeah. So, I mean, I went, and, uh, they, I think it was a month long thing. You had to do a month of shows. Oh, I got and, it. I found it. It's, it was in the finals. It was you, Mike Davis, Dana Carvey, Michael Winslow. Yeah. And A. Whitney Brown. A. Whitney. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, so you go up, so you, you just heard about it or you'd been working up in San Francisco? I had been working the punchline for a while, too. Uh, that was another club I got the headline early. Yeah, and you won. And I missed a show. Huh. You remember that, uh, well, at that time, you did like six shows for the finals and they dropped the lowest score. Well, I got lost trying to find the venue. I got totally lost and turned around. By the time I got there, the show was over. And so I couldn't go on. And everybody was like, okay, well, she's out the competition. She missed the whole show. And I said, what difference does it make if you throw away an 8.5 or a zero? You throw it away. That was in the trash. So yeah. then I went on and, you know, the other five <laughs> counted and I managed to win. But I managed to win because I learned that it doesn't matter who you follow. The jockeying for spots in the competition was funny. It was a mad, 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 mad world kind of funny. Well, I don't want to go first. You go first, you're gonna, you go last. You're in the middle, nobody remembers it. So I said, I don't give a shit. Who goes when and where? Whatever spot you guys don't want, give it to me. 
it's sort of wild to hear how it was still like so crazy because it starts out with like 40 comics, right? Yeah. It goes on for like a month and people start to lose their minds. (laughs) It got really crazy. You never lived up there? No. You just just worked up in San Francisco a lot? I managed to score a car. Yeah. And so once I got my car, I drove all over uh, California uh, just for the heck of it. I never drove in Chicago. I didn't know how to drive when I bought a car. Yeah. I didn't have any credit. I didn't have any driver's license. I had no business buying a car. Right. But I saw an ad that said they were for sale and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. 1979 Chevy Nova. Yeah. uh, Drove it all over California. Did you go back to Chicago to work over the time that you were in L.A.? Yes, I did. In fact, I just uh, uh, trophy over there is from the 40th anniversary of uh, Zanies. Zanies. I started there when they first opened up and uh, would work there regularly uh, for years and years. So you like so you were really there at the beginning of that comedy club boom thing. So when they started building those places, were you like on the road constantly headlining? Because I remember seeing your picture everywhere. It must have mean you must have spent a lot of time out there at those clubs when they first started opening. Yeah, I got to. Uh, fortunately, I got to work a lot of the uh, franchise clubs. Yeah, I started like I said at the last stop. And the improv, then all of the other giggles, teehee, yuck, yuck, ha ha. But you could work every week, right? For probably pretty good uh, living. Well, I worked, you know, if I could work a couple of times a month or yeah. a month, I, as long as I could make rent, I was good. You know, sure. I was fine. And then spending the rest of the time in LA uh, trying to get other gigs. Get on TV? Know. Yeah. So how did that uh, how did that happen for you? How did the because uh, like Night Court was a big deal, man. Well, before Night Court, I was doing like I said, I wasn't really pursuing acting. Yeah, my agent decided who the agent I I got after um, the comedy competition in San Francisco uh, named Fred Amzell. He was always sending me out on roles, and I'm like, I'm a stand-up. He's like, yeah, go do the thing, see what happens, what the hell. <laughs> yeah. And so I I was, uh, after the prior show, I got uh, a show called That Thing on ABC. And that's how I got my first agent at ICM. I had the gig, you know, they offered me the gig, and I didn't have an agent. So I called ICM and said, I got a gig, I need an agent. He said, you have a job? I said, yes, I have a job on TV. Yeah. He said, you have a job on TV and you don't have an agent. I said, yes. They said, hang on. And they, they gave me an agent. And that was how I got an agent. Did you stay, so, with, stay with that person? Uh, he passed away, one of the first uh, AIDS victims. Uh-huh. And so I was there until then. Mm-hmm. And then we started doing... Uh, Stand. I did shows like uh, the Pat Sajak show. I right. did Gordon Elliott show. Huh. I don't even know what that is. Yeah. They were a lot. Talk shows were popular at that time. 
Oh, Pat Sajak, right there. Yeah, they tried to get him to be like a Carson almost. Yeah, I did those, and I did. I started doing game shows. I love game shows. I wanted to be the next Betty White. Yeah. And so I started doing those kinds of things and uh, doing stand-up. And then Night Court, Brandon Tartikoff was from Chicago, and he was head of uh, President NBC at the time. And so Riney, who was a producer on Night Court, was also from Chicago. I had no idea either of them knew who I was. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. after Flo Hallett passed away, I had done a pilot with Flo. She had told me all these wonderful stories about her and her brother starting in show business in the 30s and 40s. And he was one of the dead end kids, Billy Hallop. And then and she was working. And I just loved talking to her. Yeah. So she was on night court. And I'm doing stand up. Yeah. She passed away. Uh, three weeks before they were supposed to go back uh, from hiatus. Oh, my God. The second bailiff to have died over the hiatus. Uh, Selma Diamond had passed away the year before. So they were in a tizzy. What do we do with the female bailiff part? Do we want to do it? Do we want to can it? Do we just stick with pull? Do we have revolving bailiffs? You know, yeah, yeah. they didn't have any idea. So Fred, my agent, sent me over there. I said, just meet with them, see what happens. Yeah. I go in, I'm dressed pretty much like I do now. I got on sweats. I got a pack <laughs> of cigarettes at the time. I smoked a pack of cigarettes in my hand. I went in, and Riney's there. And Night Court, you have to understand, was a really big hit at this time. So it had already been on two seasons? It had been on three seasons. I started the fourth season. So I go in and Ryan needs, how you doing? I say, how you from Chicago? Yeah, I'm from Chicago. He said, give me one of those cigarettes. I said, okay, sure. So I gave him a cigarette. And we sat and smoked and just talked. Yeah. And he said, okay, well, we'll let you know what we're going to do. You know, it's good meeting you. And I said, thanks, good meeting you. And I left. That was, you know, yeah. I'm a stand-up. Yeah. So, and I was going to Seattle. So I left, went to Seattle. To the underground? Got off the plane. Yeah, got off the plane. They met me at the airport and said, call your agent. I said, what happened? They said, call your agent. I called my agent. He said, you got it. I said, I got what? Again, night court. That was that. That's a big life change though, right? I had no clue what it was going to mean. One thing changes everything. And you were, you, were, you were in Seattle. Were you gonna? Were you about to do the underground for Fox? Or for so, yeah. That's so funny, man. Just because I, I can picture that. You're like, I'm going to go work the weekend in <laughs> Seattle. And then you get that job and the whole life changes. There you go. I think I did the weekend and showed up the, you know, Monday morning. Sure. You went ahead and did the weekend. Of course. Yeah. How, that's what you do. But like when you get back, so you'd only done stand up on television, really. Oh, and the Richard Pryor thing. But I mean, I can't. But right. now you're. Now you're that thing on ABC. But I had never done ensemble work. So, and I never, you know, done anything like that. So I am petrified uh -huh. and I'm nervous as all get out. Yeah. Uh, almost as nervous as when I did that sketch with Richard Pryor where right. we sitting around eating. I had no, I didn't know what to do. There was no script to do that scene. There was no. Which scene? There. Which scene was that? Richard and I eating, uh, seducing each other across a, a restaurant. Oh, okay. And I had no. <laughs> dialogue no nothing all it said was richard comes in sees a beautiful woman and they seduce each other with food uh-huh
it goes viral three times a year on yeah. uh, on, uh, <laughs> yeah. and it, it on YouTube. Classic. It's uh, it's been shared so many times. Um, I had no clue at the uh, time how to do it. I just did it on instinct. So I go to do night court, and I figure I got to take acting classes. I talk to my agent. And I said, well, who do I? Do? I mean, I right now. It's two weeks we go into that. I got to know. You go and you take this class. And I went to the, to the class and we did one little scene and they said, you got to buy a book. You know, part of the thing was you buy a book They read the book and come back next week. So I bought the book. I opened it up to page one. It said, the key to acting is to keep it simple. So I closed the book and never looked at it again. <laughs> Showed up at work the next next time when I went to birthday. And I told Harry, I said, I'm so nervous. I don't know what I'm doing. He said, I don't know what I'm doing either. I'm a stand-up to it. You just be fine. You'll be fine. And that was happening. I, I guess that must have been pretty exciting. I mean, in terms of, you know, I can't imagine, like I've worked with not like that ensemble. There were so many, you know, great comedic actors on there, but just to be sort of getting in the flow of that, like seeing how everyone else is funny and then kind of feeling how you're funny among these people. It must've been exciting. It was very exciting. It was a, it was a learning process. You know, I learned a a lot Yeah, Uh, and I got, uh, you know, stretched a lot, Yeah, you know, way out of my comfort zone. Oh yeah. How so? Because I'm a stand-up. Yeah, I know, but yeah, but but as a stand-up, I, I you keep saying that, and I say that too. But there's so many stand-ups that end up in television, one way or the other. And I guess it takes a minute for us to learn how to act. Uh, but you know, once you get the hang of it, you're usually you got pretty comfortable, didn't you? Well, to a degree, but I was more much more excited when I got comfortable on stage doing sure. stand-up. I think some people start in the business as stand-ups, but yeah. they're not stand-ups. They don't right. want to do for stand-ups. Sure. For they sure. Wanna, they just use it as a stepping stone. I never looked at it that way. Yeah, me neither. I wanted to be a stand-up comedian. Yeah. And so uh, the acting was nice, but it was a sideline. In my mind, I was still going out on weekends and doing gigs. I would of course. get finished, you know, with Night Court on Friday night. I on a plane at six the next morning to yeah. be wherever to do some weekend somewhere. No, and yeah, I, I, I get I, it. I it, was doing stand-up, so. It, it was, and also, it's like with the stand-up, it's our thing. You know, we have complete control. We are the only one doing it. It's it's what we do. It's how we share our thoughts and our and our heart. And, uh, you know, and, and no one can fuck with it. Well, you're the ph- philosopher, yeah. you know? Yeah. And it's a necessary function you know those those uh critiques of society I, they, they keep people honest you know bullshit call it i, I call bullshit on that yeah i, it's, I always uh, thought that i always thought that was a very I, important job yeah so i that's where i wanted to be that's what i wanted to do and the only other woman at the time who was doing that kind of grab the mic and you know uh State your opinion. Yeah. Was Elaine Boozler? Yeah, Elaine Boozler. Yeah. I keep trying to get her on the show. I think she's mad at me. I'm not sure why. <laughs> now, well, if you got a puppy. I know. I got to. 
<laughs> yeah, tell her I need help with my doggy. Mm -hmm. She likes the dogs. I yeah, I don't know. I don't know what I did to offend her, but like, uh, were you guys close? Were you and Elaine? We hung out. You know, we were part of the come the strike, mm -hmm. the community strike, and uh, so you were there for the strike. What year was that? Seventy seven, seventy eight. Really? That was the oh my god! So you were there when Lebitkin killed himself? Yes, I was very much involved. Yeah. Because I read yeah. the I read the book and I can't like figure out I can't quite remember and I talked to Dreesen about it. That was pretty heavy, man. You know, because you know Dreesen never went back there. You know, after Steve committed suicide. No, well, we had pretty hard feeling. Yeah, we're from Chicago. I'm from a union background. My mother was a union uh, uh, rep, uh, yeah. president of her tri-state local okay yeah. union you yeah. know right look for the union label um and so and being from chicago and of union protections i mean i've been in a union since i was 15. yeah and it was just so unfair that uh comedians weren't getting paid yeah and while at the same time the comedy store franchise was exploding. She didn't own, you know, the building when we first got there. She, yeah. you know, that was the annex was a little room they just let her have. That was, you know, and next thing you know, she owned Ciro's. <laughs> well, it wasn't Ciro's, but you know, yeah, yeah, that tradition, that room, that that legend. Yeah, and uh, La Jolla. She's got property in La Jolla. There were two condos in La Jolla. You got two. Goes on the, oh, you got a ranch in the back. You got clubs and Westwood and whatnot, and nobody's getting paid. Yeah, that just was. Uh, I I could couldn't wrap my head around. So you're dug into the organizing with Tom. Yeah, there must have been a uh, a very weird and crazy time to deal with the comics that crossed the line. Yes, and the tensions that happened there. Those, you know. And I will not name them, but there are still hard feelings about that. I've never forgiven them. Really? Never. never. And ultimately, though, the, the, the strike, you, you got, we did get paid, right? Bud Friedman, uh, right away. Yeah. Whatever Mitzi gives you, I'll mint whatever. Yeah. And so that's when people started going to the improv because in the beginning you couldn't work both. She places. wouldn't let you or they both wouldn't let you. You couldn't let and it was a location thing. Yeah. For some reason people felt like stopping off the strip was better than stop. Melrose, nothing was happening at that. The Melrose was paint stores and uh, right. you know empty lots. There was nothing going on there. And so people would, on their way to the valley, stop at the comedy store. Yeah. Well, once the strike started happening, the boycott, and then everybody's, uh, and Bud said, I'll pay you. Everybody moved to the improv. Wow. So, so that's I what. being managed by Bud. You did? Yeah. How long were you managed by Bud? Oh, until about, until right before I got an encore. No kidding. Yeah. 
Did you get along with him all right? Sure. I, him and his family, I would say, you know, hung out. I just hung out at the improv. They would have dance nights and stuff. And, oh, yeah. Yeah, I did all that. So were you then, like, uh, were you on Mitzi's bad side after that? I never went back to the comedy store. Well, I did go back. And then one night she bumped me for Glenn Super. Glenn Super? Yeah. The guy with the megaphone? Yeah. Oh, my God. So that was the end of that. That was that. <laughs> that was that for me. <laughs> that was done. And so, yeah. you're gone after. And yeah. No, I won't. Were there uh, several comics that didn't go back after the strike? Well, some of us went back for a minute and whatever, but it just wasn't, it was no longer a good fit. And it was no longer the only game in town. Yeah. The, Jamie Masada, who at that time was hanging out at the comedy store and during the strike, Jamie was about 15, 16. Really? I'll open a club. I'm going to open a club. I'm going to give you guys, I'll pay you guys. I swear. I'm going to open a club and I'm going to pay you guys. I don't care because this is not fair. This is not right. He was always around the strike. He was always around. Yeah. And so everybody was like, yeah, you're going to open a club. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and sure enough, he opened a club. I remember that place Still back there. then. Yeah, yeah. well, the, the original place, it was like almost like a hallway. It was like next to that Chinese restaurant. But it was that, remember, you walk in and you're in the room. And you right. had to walk all the way down to go to the bathroom, which was like, you know, right next to the stage. Right? <laughs> I vaguely remember that place. I Now that you mention it, I know it was uh, over there. Wasn't it over there by Greenblatt's? Yeah, it was, by, it was next to the old Formosa before they cl- closed it down. Oh, on... on uh... On no, not Formosa. No, the, the Chinese restaurant, that Greenblatt's. Like, remember there was a Chinese restaurant next to the original Laugh Factory that that, that I think became Greenblatt's? I don't remember, but it's, yeah. It's, Greenblatt's it's, had been there, but I, I, I remember, you know, it's yeah. all that it's right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 100 years ago, man. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, I... Uh, and he opened it. He did it. He opened he the opened club. He opened the club. He did it, and it's a it's a Hollywood institution now. Now it is, yeah. And I remember him as a kid. So, you, so once, so once you start doing the the night court, did that get your your ticket sales up, and did everything change in that way? Oh, that it it was amazing. The night the the day after it aired, okay, yeah. my stock went up with the community and the comedians right away. Yeah, right. right. But once the the night after the first show aired. I had no idea what celebrity was, you know, even though I was headlining clubs, working around and doing fine. I was happy. Um, just the. I was not prepared for it. And the thing that really shook me most was I had lost my observer status. Ah. As a comedian, you know, we're the we're the observers. Yeah. And uh, I I had no point, no place to observe. Everywhere I went, I was being observed. <laughs> and so oh, it was a very strange thing for me to get used to. I don't know that I ever did. Well, that's a, that's interesting because even when I started doing this show, 
you know, like I've been doing comedy all my life, you know, and then once this got popular, people go, I really like the the podcast. And I think like, well, what about the, the stand-up? I've been doing, I've been doing stand-up my whole life. Yeah, and most, well. and a lot of people don't know about it, but like when you're a comic in your heart, that's the priority. And it becomes this weird world you live in where you want to make sure, at least know that people are appreciating you for what you love to do. Right. right. Yeah. But you know, we, it's part of, of the game and part of the thing, you know. But you were selling tickets at least. And, you know, I imagine you were writing new material either way, right? Oh, what I had gotten to the point before I retired for uh, quite a few years, I had gotten to the point where stand-up was easy. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know that that's a good thing. Why? Because, because everyone, because you were popular? No, because I I was so comfortable in what I was doing. I knew that if I wrote a joke, I could yeah. do it that night and it was going to hit. I knew how to do stand-up. Right. It took a while. I knew how to do stand-up. And it, uh, it kind of lost the challenge mm. for a minute. Interesting. Uh, and then when I started back again a few years ago, all that was gone. I had no, I was a, I was a rookie. I would started, I had to start from scratch. And so I started in going back to bars, going back to, you know, the bare minimum, whatever, uh -huh. and started from the ground up. How long were you out for? Uh, almost 20 years. And you, so you moved to Vegas. Now, when you moved to Vegas, did you have a, a, a residency there or something? No, I did not work after uh, after 2001. I did not work until uh, about 2016. And why? Did you get like depressed or something, or are you just done? No, it was a combination of a lot of things. Uh, but uh, it was a more family-oriented uh, than anything else. Oh, yeah. And uh, I needed to be here with family uh -huh. uh, and until I could that I wasn't as needed right and start back again huh and and how are you finding it it's very interesting as a as a you know I started as a 60 year old rookie yeah and um it's humbling in one way but in a in another way it's so exhilarating it's like to be at this age and still have things to look forward to still have goals to meet and uh and you know uh along the way steps to take is a blessing i see a lot of people my age who don't they've crossed everything off right. and now uh you know, on their bucket list are things to just uh, fun stuff, you know, and just, you know, I want to go to Hawaii. Yeah. Well, no, on my bucket list is I, I want to work here. I want to go there. I want to do this. I want to get my own show. I want to do this. I want to do a one woman show. I can have uh, it. It, it's, uh, it gives me uh, things to look forward to. Uh, which is, like I said, a blessing at my age. Well, I mean, also you've, you've got your observer status back. And uh, well, that's a good thing. Is a uh, <laughs> double-edged sword. Uh -huh. <laughs> Nobody cares if you watch. Yeah, and it seems like there that you've had a life and a lot of changes in your life that you could address 
probably in a way that you couldn't address back when you were doing stand-up before. Yeah, well, that comes with living, you know, yeah. I think all of us. We, there's a, it's a different stand-up at this age than it was at 22. What, what do you talk about? Because I, I know that you went through stuff with your family and I, you know, I did some reading and I know that you came out recently. Now, do you, do you, do you talk about that stuff? Sure. Yeah. Sure. Do you find yeah. that there's a new audience for it? For me, all, uh, every audience is new. Right. But uh, I've always wanted to do stand up for a cross section of, I never wanted to do uh, so much all women, all gays, all blacks, all this. Yeah, all sure, this. sure, sure. I wanted young people, old people, and I'm finding that I'm getting that, that if the audiences are diverse and, uh, uh, you know, some not receptive <laughs> because I don't shy away from the topics that are really moving the country right now, the racism, the sexism, the you know, ageism, yeah. all of that. Yeah. Uh, and uh, sometimes it's uh, hard for people to take. Yeah. But I I say, you can't fix what you won't face. And so let's put it on the table and let's talk about it. I'm going to come from a, a, a point of view you might not have heard. But like for you in terms of facing stuff, I mean, it did, it seems like it did take you a long time to, at least publicly deal with uh, being open about your sexuality, but yes. that and but that but that wasn't because you were hiding it. It was just because. Well, so much has happened, you know. Of the benefit for me, I look back. My act is pretty much a retrospective. Yeah, that, that brings us to today. Yeah, you know, I, I talk about how uh, I was born uh, the same year Oprah Winfrey, a couple of months apart. Yeah, in the year of Brown versus the Board of Education. So we grew up with the Civil Rights Movement. And I take it from there, you know, and that is a perspective that I don't know that you always get, you know, that how we got here, yeah. what it was like to be gay in the 50s and 60s and not have any concept of homosexuality whatsoever. None. It was not talked about. It was not, there were, no, it was just not spoken of. Right. And so to not be able to find what makes you different. Mm. Everybody will tell you you're different. Mm. But nobody says how. And so uh, you just know that nothing makes sense. Mm. And there was uh, no community. If it was, it wasn't. I wasn't allowed to know it. Right. You right. know what I mean? It was like not it just was not on the radar. People did active things to keep you from that. Sure. See, they, they saw what they saw and they tried to stop you. Like, um, it's like when kids would be left-handed. Yeah. You saw your baby going for their left hand, then you smack their hand and you. some people went so far as to tie them around, behind their back so they would have to favor right, their right, right, hand. right. And they did the same thing with children they thought were gay. It's like, oh, he wants to play with that doll. No, you can't play with that doll. You have to play with this G.I. Joe and go kill something. <laughs> You're a boy. Right. To have those kinds of, of negative reinforcements, but not have any idea what you're being protected from. Right. Uh, was a different thing that I don't know. 
uh, kids have to face now. At least they know why people hate them, but at least they know why they don't fit in. Right. right. Yeah, there, there's at least, a, well, now there's definitely a strong community that they can, they, they know what their feelings are and they know that they're okay, at least to some people. Right. Right. They at least know they exist. That's and right. People, uh, and you got, yeah. what, was there like a, fam- a lot of family pressure, like to, to not, be... It's hard to put into into uh, so people understand. It was, don't you want to look nice? Don't you want to look pretty? Why do you want to wear jeans? Why do you want to do this? Why, do <laughs> right. you, why don't you want to get your hair done? Why don't you be a lady? Yeah. And all of those things. Yeah. And I don't want to do that. I don't want to. I want to why do I have to? What is boy stuff and girl stuff? Why is it boys, girl? What? Yeah. Why yeah. can't I, you know? Just do what I want. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh it's it wasn't so much you know you can't be blah 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 you know it sure. was more like this is what you're supposed to be and i don't feel that and most of it i think you know the less the more benign you know that it seems like a lot of times it's out of concern that sure. that that parents do that it's not good but they think your life is going to be more difficult and trying to protect you, but we right. we know more now. Yeah. And a lot of it, I, you know, I don't feel resentful. I feel, you know, like they did the best they could. They were wrong. Yeah. Why did it take you so long, do you think, to be public about it? Well, you have to remember, nobody was public about it until... Uh, <laughs> yeah. Ellen. Right. Or, I mean, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And she paid a price for that. I guess that's true. Uh, it yeah. wasn't. A, there were a lot of people. Right. Who uh, I have found out myself. Right. Uh, who were gay. Yeah. I had no idea. We'd never. T- and I knew them. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. We didn't talk about it. It wasn't something that was spoken of. Oh, that's, it wasn't, you know. that's sad, it seems. But now well, now everything's on the table. You feel better? fine you know i just don't want my whole thing is i don't want any more kids growing up that way yeah afraid to be who they are right well that's good i think that's good any more celebrities to die with that secret right you know had to live their whole lives uh as sex symbols some of them right as you know, objects of other people's desire, but they couldn't express who they were. I, I don't, I don't want that to happen again. If I have any little bit of influence, any tiny little bit of influence, that's what I want to use it for. Do you, do you have? Um, I know we're all kind of stuck in this uh, horrendous uh, virus situation, and now uh, a, a, a very sort of active and explosive protest situation. Do you have, do you find that you have, do you have hope in general? Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I also have, but I have also be, not become, I've always, I think been a, a bit of a realist, uh-huh. you know, there are things that won't be addressed because people don't want to face them. Right. We don't want to face the horrors that we have committed. Right. Uh, as a nation, as people as we have been horrible to each other. And as some people uh, have gotten much more of the the brunt of the negative 
than others. Mm. Uh, and as a nation, as people, we don't want to face that. And until we do, we'll keep having these uh, spot fires, you mm. know, instead of just addressing the whole thing before the whole thing burns up. Right. Uh, and so I have hope that, you know, these little spot fires are going to be put out, but I don't know that I have as much hope that they're going to prevent the forest fire. Mm. Uh, you yeah. got to realize that it could all go up. And yeah. until we face that, yeah, we're going to keep, we, it's been going on periodically. You go back in history. I mean, these things happen pretty regularly. The oppression and the, and the the sort of creating the the uh, the systemic racist state has been going on since the beginning of the country, right? And then there's somebody says, "Hey, stop that!" And yeah, there's right. war, and right. there's this, and there's reconstruction, and then the people say, "Fuck that! Yeah. We want our slaves back!" And they come back and say the lost cause and start building the hero statues, and they've been gone with the wind and just rewriting history. Yep. And then it comes like you have a Harlem Renaissance and people migration and their thing and a boom. And then you got the, you know, Tulsa race riots, and this, that, and other. And there's a Jim Crow and the civil rights movement. And we man, we finally overcame it. And then, no, we didn't. There's a the Southern uh, <laughs> thing in the bomb. And, it, and now here we are. Yeah. And we refuse to understand that it, it's going to keep happening until you fix it. Realize that it's you know it's not black, white, male, female as a, a triple, well, quadruple minority. Yeah, you know you get to see everybody's <laughs> nuttiness. You know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so. Well, I hope we. I hope it. I hope it. I hope we can. Uh, we can at least uh, acknowledge it before the big fire. I do too. I hope we can fix. It. I hope we. You know, you and I. Uh, can do our part. Yeah. Well, I think uh, we just did a little bit. And help people understand this. It'll be okay. Okay. I'll take your word for it. It was Mm -hmm. great talking to you, Marcia. Thank you. It's great talking to you too. Mike Binder says hi, by the way, and I'll I'll tell him we had a nice talk. I'll tell him I said hello. I remember him. He was a tiny kid. He was brand new. I know. He was. Like a teenager, right? Yeah. He and uh, Dave Chappelle and... uh, Eddie Griffin. Oh, the guys who started when they were young? They were, they were, they called me an old lady back then. (laughs) Yeah. I remember Chappelle when he was like 16, 17, coming up to New York. But he was a great student. He wanted to know everything. He wanted to to know everything. He and Chris Rock. And, you know, these were teenagers when I met him. They wanted to know and they wanted to hang out. They wanted to learn. They and they did. They sure and did. Teaching everybody. That's for sure. All right, you take care of yourself. You too. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye. That was great talking to Marsha Warfield. Still out there working when she can, when we all can. A legend. All right, now I will play, 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 play. Not play, play some guitar.
rumor lives. <laughs>